we're going to take our Bible tonight and uh, go to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter number 32, Psalms chapter 32, we're going to uh, come down through this chapter, uh, verse 1 down through verse 11, and uh, this is a, a psalm of David uh, where he expresses uh, forgiveness that he has received, and uh, we learn a lot from this. Uh, David's a great example for all of us, I think, as we see the, uh, the battle with sin, the battle with our human nature. And, uh, and so I want us to look tonight at the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of forgiveness. And I love how he starts this psalm, Psalm 32 and verse 1, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That verse right there says so much for us. But let's read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to just expound this tonight uh, for our Bible study, and I pray that it would encourage us and, and challenge us as well. Verse 2, he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When we come to the topic of forgiveness, we as Christians, we have some idea of what that means. Uh, We ourselves know that when we got saved, we have been forgiven, right? We've been forgiven of our sins, of our trespasses, and it is a joyous thing. And this is what we see in our text from David. We see the blessing of forgiveness. And we think of why forgiveness is a blessing. What is it, essentially? Well, forgiveness is essentially freedom. It is being set free from the guilt and the punishment that comes with sin, because guilt and punishment uh, rested upon us with the sin that we have committed. And so, whether we've committed sin willfully or ignorantly, we commit them in both ways, Uh, we need forgiveness from our sins, of our transgressions. Uh, You know, one time I was a teenager, I backed into our garage door. Anybody else have have that happen to you? And uh, knowing, I see some some nudges going on, Uh, knowing my dad, I thought, man, this is going to make him furious. What am I going to do? It was just a dumb teenage move, you know. I backed into it, put a big dent there, and I'm contemplating it, and I'm thinking, uh, how can I maybe dent this out and get away with it and never, never tell him about it? Uh, but I knew that he would eventually find out, and that just weighed heavy, heavy upon me as a teenager. And uh, so I mustered up the bravery to go and tell him, and I was scared to death, and to my surprise, he was actually merciful. He didn't scream at me, didn't yell at me. He went out there and checked it out and fixed it, and, um, and uh, things were back to normal. Uh, but the guilt and punishment that I was expecting, he was merciful and didn't uh, give me that. And that, that's essentially what forgiveness is like. It's what we all need because 
We all have guilt and deserve punishment from God because all of our sin is against Him. All of it is. Now, when we read this psalm, it's attributed to David, and it's one of the psalms that issues uh, a confession and repentance and, and, and expression of that. And, and so this psalm expresses that at the first half, but uh, that's not all it expresses. Throughout the latter part of this psalm, David gives instruction uh, that is good for all believers, and he can confidently speak of this instruction from his own experience. But central to this psalm is the great joy and relief that comes from being forgiven. Now, David knew a lot about the need of forgiveness. Uh, though we know him as what? The man after God's own heart, right? He's the one man that we find in Scripture that he's, he's given that description. But even though he is that, he's also a man who had a serious struggle with sin. He had uh, some very low points of sin. In fact, we see sins in his life that we would see as some extreme sins. His adultery with Bathsheba, his planned murder of her husband. Um, and so that's, that's some serious sin with consequence that came from those. Now, some attribute this passage in reference to that specific sin because it speaks of a time when he refuses to acknowledge that sin, and uh, some maybe connect that to the one with Bathsheba, uh, saying that this, maybe this was a sequel psalm to Psalm 51. And um, it's possible, but there's no clear identification of whether that's the sin he's referencing or not. Um, either way, the text give us, gives us the same, the same teaching and the same example. So notice with me two headings tonight, just two. But don't, don't get excited. You know the rule. You know how this goes, right? Just because there's two doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. Uh, notice David's experience with sin here. His experience with sin, but also with forgiveness as we come through the first half of this psalm. Uh, and I've broke this down into three, three headings here. Notice David, he, exp- he, ex- he expresses his sin as being covered in verse 1 and verse 2. Notice that he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Now, this expression of blessed is a manifestation of joy and freedom that comes with the forgiveness of sin. And I'll point that out further in just a moment. But forgiveness, understand, it is directly connected to sin. If you don't have sin, you don't have need for forgiveness, right? Okay, that's, that's, that's just plain and simple. Sin is transgression against someone and necessitates the person offended to be the forgiver. Now, if I was to go to my wife and said, will you please forgive me, her response would be, well, for what? Well, if I haven't done anything against her, I don't need to ask her forgiveness, right? But if I say something like that, she's going to pry on me and say, like, what did you do? <laughs> she's going to think I've been up to something uh, and, uh, that she didn't previously know about. But here's the reality. When it comes to God, there is no lack of sinning against him. Now, I may have times where I don't sin against my wife or I don't, Uh, do things that would offend her, but we sin against God every day. We do so in two ways. We do so ignorantly, so we sin in ways that we don't immediately recognize, and then we also sin against Him willfully. There are times when we know better and we do it anyway. And, And so it's something that we can't refrain from doing perfectly in this earthly life. Now, why is that? Because our human nature is to sin. Now, David wrote in his other psalm of confession, the one that is directly tied to this sin with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David understood this point, that 
The sin he commits is rooted in the very fabric of his human nature. He's born this way. He's conceived this way. Our nature is to sin. We cannot escape that any more than a dog can cease to be a dog. He's a dog, right? He's a, we are sinners. Now, one might ask, well, what about since our hearts have been regenerated, right? That makes a difference. Since our day of our new birth, shouldn't we be able not to sin? Well, the answer is regeneration has definitely changed us. It has made us new. We're a new creature internally in Christ. But we still, even though we've been made new internally, we abide in a fallen flesh that still is prone to sin. Now, Paul describes this struggle in Galatians 5.17. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to. So here's what we find with this. Though we are not sinless in our human life, because of the Spirit, we can sin less. We can sin less. Okay, so we can walk in a way that is holy, but we cannot think that we will be sinless until the day of our glorification. Now, I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I look forward to that day. When I'm not at war with this flesh and the world around me, where there will be a perfect, uh, uh, we'll have a perfect body like unto Christ. But until that day, you are at war with sin. It's a reality you can't escape. It's warfare with this, all right? So the Spirit of God is the one that enables us to live as we ought to live uh, and prompts us to confess. But notice that David speaks here of transgression. What is this transgression he speaks of? The word for transgression there in the Hebrew lexicon just refers to a crime in general or a breaking of law, right? When we think of crime, we think of someone breaking the law. So if someone goes out and does something in our society and they break the law of the land, that's, a, that's considered a crime, right? Well, when it comes to God, that's exactly what transgression is. It is the breaking of God's law. It's the breaking of His law of righteousness and morality, of us being lawless in our thinking or in our behavior. So transgression here uh, is not a, uh, something that is accidental, although those do happen. But the weight of this word refers to a failure to do what ought to be done. It was a willful sin that David committed. He went into it knowing full well what he was doing was wrong. Now, how many of us have ever done that? Have we ever done something that we full knew well was wrong before we did it? We're all guilty of that. We're all, we've all done it, even if we don't remember doing it. That of, that of just being a child. I mean, you, I just watch my kids and I just I sometimes giggle, but then i got to bring the hammer down, right? Uh, they just they look at what they're not supposed to do, and they ponder it, and then they do it anyway. But you have to teach them discipline, what right and wrong is. But the willfulness in our nature to do that. David then uses the word for sin, which, which is a word that uh, refers to missing the mark or coming up short uh, of a specific goal. Now, Paul said this in Romans 3.23, we're all familiar with. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's he mean by that? All of humanity has fallen short, missed the mark of God's standard, of His perfect standard, right? And so this references the reality that all of us have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And since we've all sinned and transgressed the law of God, both of us, both who are saved and who are unsaved, we still do that. What is it that we need for any and every sin? We need forgiveness. We need the one whom we have transgressed against to forgive us of our offense against him. Because all sin is an offense against our holy, 
God who gave us life. And what does David say about this person's sin, which is his own, he's referencing? He says that his transgression is forgiven and his sin is covered. Now, the word that David uses for forgiven here in Psalm 32, it's a word that gives the sense that that sin has been lifted away. It's been lifted away. It's a word that stresses the idea of it being completely taken away. The burden and guilt that comes with that is gone. And so the parallel line here says that his sin was covered or hidden, meaning that it is concealed, it's out of sight, it's no longer able to cause guilt or fear. You know, we're, we're reading to our kids a, um, a children's version of the Pilgrim's Progress, and it's got all these pictures, you know, and you see Christian, and he's carrying that big burden on his back. And uh, I begin to teach them about what that burden is. That burden is his sin, the guilt and weight of that sin. Uh, but then, and so throughout the first few chapters, you know, he's carrying this burden, his burden, and it's kind of intrigued the kids. They're like, what about this burden, Dad? Is he always going to have that? Well, then he comes to the point where he reaches the cross, right, the place of deliverance. And what happens with that burden? It's lifted. It's taken away. And so that's what happens with forgiveness, is that the burden of sin is lifted. It's removed from us. And so when God forgives sin, he removes that sin. The guilt and punishment that come with that sin are gone and it is never to be brought up again or charged against you in this world or the world to come. That, that's, a, that's something that's hard for me to fathom, that God would be willing to do such a thing considering how holy he is. But it shows us the depths of his grace. This brings us to verse 2. Now notice what verse 2 says. He says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, what's he mean by this? It means that the Lord does not hold that sin upon your account. Now, it's almost as if keeping a record, right? God has a record of every sin of every man that's ever lived. And that's a scary thought when you consider the fact of Judgment Day and someone standing before God and giving account of every sin they have ever committed because every sin carries with it just punishment. And it's an, it's an infinity amount of what we sin in our life. We could never count them, right? We would never want our sin on our account or be countable to God for each one. It's an immeasurable weight of just ju- judgment. Psalm 130, 3 and 4 tells us this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If he marks our iniquities to our account, who can stand? Who can get through that? No one, right? But the good news is in verse 4. But with you, Lord, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be filled. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. This is the immense blessing of forgiveness. David knows it. Every Christian knows it. But there is also a condition to this. Keep in mind that I'm speaking in the realm of the Christian's life, not necessarily conversion. That's a separate topic, and we'll look at that maybe a little bit. But I'm thinking in the realm of the Christian life. There's also a condition to this forgiveness in the realm of our Christian life as far as our fellowship with God and restoration with Him. Notice also that he says this, blessed is, the man, uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit or guile. Why is that important? Because if the guilty sinner holds back or denies his sin, 
There is no genuine repentance, and if there is no genuine repentance, there is no genuine forgiveness. There is no point in holding back what God already knows. But our nature is prone to try to justify our sin in some way, right? Well, it's not that bad. Well, I'll tell God about this part, but ah, the other part's not really, you know, that's not necessary. You see, God knows whether our confession is genuine or not. You, you may even give God a confession, but you not really mean it. You just, you just oh, I, I did this, so I should probably confess it to God. What does God desire? What does he expect? He expects our heart to genuinely understand how serious our sin is against him. Now, David is quoted in the New Testament referencing what believers experience through faith in Christ in Romans 8, excuse me, 4, verse 3 through 8. I won't go there tonight. I put it there in your notes. But that he does point out that at the point of faith in Jesus as Savior, our account of sin is replaced with the account of righteousness. Not ours, but Christ's, right? We have none of our own. Christ is imputed to our account, but that speaks of the position of the believer before God. It does not mean that in our Christian life we'll be perfect in the way we live, in our practice, although there will be a change in our life. There is an eternal forgiveness in Christ. But understand, when it comes to the realm of the Christian life, you and I are in need of a continual forgiveness with our fellowship with God. When we sin against Him in our daily life, we need to confess that and seek restoration. Notice with me, letter B. Notice that David, he speaks of his, his he expresses uh, this, this, this forgiveness of sin that he has in verse 1 and 2. And we'll touch back on that in just a moment. But I want you to see letter B because this is important. I want you to see his misery when his sin brought chastisement. His misery when his sin brought chastisement. Now, David is already a believer when he had sinned. Sin did not change who he is in Christ, okay? Don't mistake this. It did not change his position before God as righteous, but it does change one's fellowship with God in this life. Now look at verse 3 and verse 4. Notice this. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer or the drought of summer. What's David doing here? He's giving us insight into his own personal life where he sinned and he took some time before he came to repent and confess. Notice he says, when I kept silent. What does he mean by keeping silent? It means he's refraining from confessing that sin. He's refraining from confessing that sin to the Lord. Have you ever known you needed to confess sin but refused to do it for a period of time? We've probably all been there, right? Whether that was a short time or a long time, believers do this all the time. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin isn't that big a deal or maybe what we've done is not sin at all. We see a lot of that in today's culture. Why? Because the world is pushing on us that, well, this isn't sin and this is. Woe to them that call light darkness and darkness light. When, and, and if you're not careful, you can let the world mentality infiltrate your own mind in which you're deceiving yourself, that you're doing things that, well, the world doesn't say that's that sinful, and you begin to think that way. So we have to be cautious against that, or it could be that since we think we're in Christ, well, we don't really need to confess. It's just under the blood, right? There's a lot of people that live that way. Well, I'm going to heaven, so it's just under the blood. I don't need to confess. 
Well, I think there's a lot of dangers there. One, there's the danger that you don't know what true conversion is. Uh, secondly, you don't realize how, how uh, serious it is to continue in sin without confessing it and turning from it. But what's the result of this? Keeping silent, not going to the Lord in confession. Notice what David says. He says, my bones wasted away, and day and night your hand was heavy upon me. His strength was dried up like the heat of summer. What's he describing? Is that what, does his description there seem pleasant at all? No, that's, that's a miserable description. His bones were waxing away. He was, his, God's hand was heavy upon him. His language expresses, expresses his, his spiritual and mental and physical misery. Perhaps his depression, his discouragement, his defeatedness in his, in his, in his mind until he came to confess his sin. And we don't know what specific sin David has in mind here, but one thing's clear. God's hand of chastisement comes upon his children. We have to be reminded of that. Proverbs 3.12 says, The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, when the Lord brings correction on us, it's always out of the motive of love and to the intent of his glory and our good. God will not let his people abide in sin without them knowing that he knows about it. If they know he knows about it and they continue going on that route, they provoke his hand of chastisement. Here's the reality. You and I can't get away with anything when it comes to the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3. Like what A.W. Tozer said, he said, The Holy Spirit never enters a man and lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. Now, you may go off astray for a moment, <laughs> But uh, God always brings his people back and lets them know where they're at. But when you decide that you're going to sin and continue without repentance, you will get God's hand of chastisement. And if you don't get God's hand of chastisement, that's a bad indication of your spiritual state. Let's look at Hebrews for a moment. This speaks, uh, I think, to more length of this very reality. Hebrews 12 and verse 4 through 11. Notice this with me. Hebrews 12, verse 4 through 11, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgot, and have you, you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son... Is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, what do you learn throughout this passage? We learn that all children of God are subject to the discipline of God and that God's discipline is always for an intended good, for our development in our Christian life unto holiness. Now, when we're under discipline, it never is pleasant. It's never enjoyable, but discipline is also essential. It's essential. 
It's just like raising children. Sometimes we have to give a spanking to Jubilee or David because they have done something they know they shouldn't have done. Or we've warned them two or three times, and the third time comes around, okay, you've gone to the limit. Here's the time of discipline. And whenever we do have to discipline them, we always make sure to express to them, I don't do this to hurt you. I do this because I love you. You must learn what is right and what is wrong and the importance of following the authority that's been placed over you. And the same applies to God. So chastisement is not enjoyable, but it's essential to developing us in our Christian life unto holiness. And so why would we continue unrepentantly when forgiveness is available when we can turn unto God? See, David knew firsthand the chastisement of God. He said his hand was heavy on him day and night. And sometimes that chastisement doesn't always come in the same way, okay? Sometimes it comes in the form of physical suffering. Sometimes it's spiritual and mental. Uh, sometimes we, 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 we'll, we'll recognize it immediately. Sometimes we may not. I can tell you an example. When I was in, uh, in high school, I was playing soccer. I knew instantly that God was chastising me. We were, there, we were in the middle of a soccer game, and there was this guy that was getting on my nerves. Every now and then you play sports, you're going to have somebody that does that. And so I see a ball coming in the air, and one of the things you do in soccer, sometimes if you can get to it, you jump up and try to hit it with your head in, the, in a certain direction, right? That may be what's wrong with me, too many soccer balls to the head, right? But I saw this guy coming up to get it at the same time as me, and I thought in my mind, I'm going to knock him on his butt. So I didn't go up into the air trying to get the ball. I went after him. You know what happened in that moment? I came down and sprained my ankle. <laughs> Missed the ball and him altogether. But if, if, at that very moment, I knew. I didn't have any doubt as to why I came down wrong and sprained my ankle and was out for a few games. I knew instantly. God had let me know through conviction in that moment, you're not going to act this way. Because even, even on the soccer team, I was one who was always, I always, the coach let me do devotions before games. I would read scripture. I would uh, try to, you know, give the gospel to our team. And so for me to get out there and behave that way, God wasn't going to let me do that. And so the chastisement came immediately. Sometimes we don't recognize it till a little later. We've been going through some hardship, and then we realize God's trying to wake me up and teach me something. So it's important for us to understand that God's hand of chastisement comes upon us. Notice with me, letter C. His correction for sin led to confession. This is what leads him to his confession. Because he's been enduring this heavy hand of God on him. So he comes to a point where he realizes his sin and he confesses it. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. Did you know that's the first step to forgiveness? You must acknowledge your sin as your own. It's yours. It's not anybody else's. There's no room for blame or excuses to be made. We must own our own sin and be honest about them with God. We must see it for what it truly is and who it is against. It is against God. Every sin. I think of Joseph in in that moment when he could have easily said, you know what, God's left me down in Egypt, and he's forsaken me, and done all these things, and he's tempted with a beautiful woman day by day and uh, to, to, to commit adultery with her. He could have easily done it. But what was his response? He said, how can I do this evil and sin against God. 
even in low points of his life, he realized that sin, all of it, was against him. This is what David says about his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So we must understand that sin, it is against him. Whether you think it's harmless or not, whether you think it's against only a certain person or not, all sin, internally and externally, is against our holy God who gave us life. Notice that David says, I did not cover my iniquity. Well, there's no point in trying to do that. You can't hide it from God. You may hide it from other people, but you can't hide it from God. He sees and knows everything. And if we do try to cover it up from God, it only gets worse. Proverbs 28, 13, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Covering our sin is our natural inclination, right? Every time Jubilee and David have a scuff, it's usually David that's crying his eyes out because something's happened. And we call them in there, and Jubilee's first reaction is to direct the story. You know how that works? Direct the story, right? And what's she doing when she tries to direct the story? She's trying to cover up the one who, being the one who made David cry, right? And then if, if she can't cover the story, she tries to pit the blame on David. So, so that's our natural inclination to cover up our transgressions. But David says, I did not do that because it's not possible. We can't do it. When you attempt to cover your sin, here's what you're doing. You're belittling your sin and continuing in your sin, and you're only doing more damage to yourself. You bring greater guilt and potential for punishment that you will not want. Understand, we get to pick our sins, but we don't get to pick our punishment. We don't. And so, verse 5, David says, I said, he's recalling, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happens when we confess our transgressions to the Lord? David says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Hallelujah. <laughs> you forgave. This, 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 is, this, is, this is the true wonder of God and his mercy and grace. God is quick to forgive. He delights in mercy. He delights in it. I don't know why we run from it so much. 1 John 1, 9. In realm of the Christian and fellowship with God, what's he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from some trespasses. No, from all trespasses, from all unrighteousness. Do you know why God is faithful to cleanse us every time we come to him in confession? He's faithful to do that because of his son. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for every sin in my life, past, present, and future, for all those who believe. God is bound by his just nature to forgive on behalf of Christ. And he always does that because Christ has atoned for our sins. So even though we as, we as believers, we do sin in our flesh, we still must not play around with sin. It cannot change our salvation, but it does hinder our fellowship with the Lord and our walking in sanctification. Jesus died to liberate us from sin, not give us a license to do that. Spurgeon said this, Christ has died for me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. What a, what a, what a, what a perspective that gives us. But notice, notice also, notice I want to come back just for a moment to that word blessed in verse 1. Because this is where you see the, the blessing of forgiveness. David says blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven and covered. 
The word blessed essentially means to being happy, or blessed is he, he's happy. It describes the real joy and delight that comes from knowing that one is right with God. It is that feeling of heavenly bliss or eternal joy over the spiritual release from sin. So you understand that when a Christian rebels and goes into sin, they're not happy. They're not happy. Anytime that I've thought that something was going to make me happy, but it was against God and His Word, what did it do? might have pleased me for a minute or so, or maybe a, a, a week or so, or however long you think, just a, a brief time. But it always makes you miserable because God dwells in you. And when we sin in such ways, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You remember what it says of Moses in Hebrews 11? He was more willing to suffer with the afflictions of his people on behalf of Christ than to endure the pleasures of sin for a season because sin's pleasures are only seasonal. They're only temporary. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, they put out this appeal that happiness is found in the pleasures of the world and being away from God and whatever it may be. But the moment one goes down that path, one realizes how empty that appeal was. Sin makes a Christian miserable. But when they come to repent and confess, that blessedness and joy return. We're prone to wander, but understand that God is quick to forgive us. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have unconfessed sin? Has God made us aware of sin that we need to turn from and confess to Him? This is a a good prayer to pray in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous or wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We need to ask that about Him. Number two tonight. The bulk of the message was in point one, so you can breathe a sigh of relief, okay? I'm almost done. I want you to see David's exhortation to the saints because he gives us his experience with sin and the forgiveness he's received, but he gives exhortation to us based on his experience. And just three quick exhortations. First one is this. We must seek after the Lord. Verse 6 through 7. We must seek after the Lord. David encourages his hearers to seek the Lord because he's gracious and merciful. He says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Notice who he's talking to. He's talking to the godly. Those who are believers. Those who are Christians. These are God's covenant people who know him, who need to be aware of their sins and the Lord's forgiveness that he offers. When a believer, when a, when a believer has conviction over sin, they're made aware of their transgression. That is when we need to repent and confess and not wait. We don't need to put that off. Why? Because if we put off that thing, confession and repentance, we make ourselves prone to hardening and being further deceived in our own sin. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the rebellion. So you notice that David says the godly must pray when the, to the Lord at a time when he may be found. Now, I had to think about that for a moment. Isn't God available at all times? Can't we find him at any time? Well, theologically, yes. But here's the point. If, if, if there is a continuation in sin for too long, we run the risk of hardening our hearts, as I mentioned, but we also run the risk of increasing God's chastisement upon us. When people are made aware of their sins, that is when they need to pray and ask forgiveness. Repent. If they do not, divine discipline will come. 
So in other words, at the time of finding or at a time when he may be found, it refers to that time of conviction by the Spirit. That is when he is to be found, when we need to turn to him. That sense sometimes may be intense upon us, that God is heavily convicting us, you need to repent. If you're not careful, we can grow cold, depending on whether we pray or rebel. And notice that David uses this imagery of a rush of great waters. Notice what he says there. He says in connection to this timing, when you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. He uses that to describe God's correction coming in as a rushing wave of water, like a flood in which all kinds of trouble can hit suddenly. But those who pray when they are prompted to do so may avoid such devastation that discipline brings. So that's what one point to bring out of there. Notice also in verse 7, when, we, when the godly come to the Lord for their sin, they find in God to be a hiding place. What does David say? He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Since it's the Lord who we've sinned against, we ought to run back to him because he's the only one that can shelter us and receive us and forgive us. Notice letter B, we must surrender to the Lord. Surrender to the Lord. David gives us insight into this instruction that God gives. In verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, this is a resolve in David to instruct the people in the way they should go. And it appears in this text that it is God speaking through David about this instruction. God's instruction is plain to his people in the way we should go, right? What is that? It's the word of the living God. He's given us everything we need to, to stay on a clear path and, and, and avoid chastisement and to be holy and to please Him and glorify Him. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119.105 says. We have no lack of instruction how we ought to live our lives. We're to humble ourselves and submit to the Lord and His word to avoid that correction. But what do we find so often in people? We find, even in ourselves, I confess for myself too, we're naturally stubborn, aren't we? Proud and stubborn. Now notice David's warning in verse 8. He gives an illustration of a horse and a mule. He says, Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Anybody ever rode a horse or a mule? Yeah. When, we were, when I was a teenager, me and our family, we used to go on uh, horseback riding. We, we owned a few horses. They were Tennessee walkers and... And uh, we'd go to certain trails and go horseback riding. And every now and then, a horse gets, his, his, gets in his mind, he's just going to do whatever he wants to do, right? Even though you're trying to keep him on a certain path, he wants to go this way, go that way. Dad's horse was particularly stubborn. I would, I would laugh at him because we'd all be on the trail, and his horse would be 10 feet over this way in the woods. And he's trying to you know, yank with the bit to get him back over. And so the more a horse goes off, the harder you got to yank. You got to use a bit to try to get him back in line, get him back where he needs to go. And so, what David is saying is that to God's people, don't be as a horse or mule where you have to be yanked so hard to get back where you're supposed to be. This is what pride does in us. And I read this quote today by Stephen Charnock Pride is self contending with God for preeminence. I thought that was a good way of putting it. So, we need to surrender ourselves to God's word. And obey him in all things. James 4, 7 through 10 will kind of express that a little further. I won't go, go there for time's sake, where he, he tells us to submit to, our, to the Lord and resist the devil, 
and uh, to repent of her sins. Let her see, I think, as we come to the close of this, we must shout unto the Lord in joy. Notice that the joy that David expresses in verse 10 and verse 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Notice that he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, because the path of sin is a dead-end road. There's no hope. The world around us acts like they're happy, but there's no real satisfaction in the way they live. It only brings sorrow. But contrast to that, David says, the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So God's love surrounds his people. And in verse 11, he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, as we are walking with the Lord and we trust him and we're pleasing him, Living as we ought to live, you understand that that's, that's where joy is. Joy is. Because when you go off, even as a believer, down your own way, you want to live in your flesh, live in your sin, that is how you lose joy. David understood that. In his psalm with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 again, verse 12, he prays in that psalm, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Why? Why does he pray for that? Because he lost it. He didn't lose his salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. And often we need the reminder of that. So the blessing of forgiveness, understand, it far exceeds the pleasures any sin could ever offer us. Yet so many people, even believers, continue in their sinful ways. I pray that we tonight would take this to heart. And uh, if this is us, that we'd not be that. We'd turn back to the Lord. We'd be like David and know what it is to be forgiven, be blessed, and enjoy the joy that it is to be forgiven and cleansed of those, our sin as we live our Christian life.